The rest of you can turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14, although we'll be in 2 Corinthians 12 a little bit after this, and we won't spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, but uh, we're uh, looking at order in the church uh, from the standpoint not of uh, kind of positional order, but as much as it is, if we're, we're talking about the gifts of using the gifts in the church and how do, how do you work toward uh, showing love, using your gifts, putting it all together. And uh, so we're going to look at that uh, this morning. Before I do that, I do want to just mention uh, uh, kind of a personal thank you to those of you who helped with uh, the conference for the Iowa Association of Regular Baptist Churches uh, that we hosted a couple of weeks ago. Those of you who helped with child care as well as just food prep and, and just hosting people here. We appreciate that a lot. And also those people who uh, cleaned the church uh, the prior week to that. Um, I, got, I got several compliments about how clean the church looked. So uh, again, I don't always notice those kinds of details, but obviously people do notice those kinds of details, and uh, we appreciate the people who put in a l- extra work and time and effort uh, getting that cleaned up and making that happen. So thank you very much, and thank you to Susan for kind of organizing that. First um, Corinthians 14, we are... Uh, we're, we're, 1 Corinthians 14 is kind of wrapping up his, his points in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. In 1 Corinthians 12, he's talking about how the gifts are given to the body for the benefit of the body, that, that all of these gifts work together, not all have the same types of function, the same types of honor, but all of them are honorable, all of them uh, are a worthy part of the body, and yet at the same time he's saying in 1 Corinthians 13 there's a better way than focusing on the gifts per se, and that's to focus on love. Love is patient and kind. It, it doesn't uh, hold uh, kind of a list of wrongs against itself. It, it, so there's this love that's going on, but then he comes back to 1 Corinthians 14, and he's saying, if you're maturing in love within the body, you're, you're, uh, you're pursuing love, but you're also seeking to benefit the body through those gifts. And he goes into an extended discussion about prophecy versus tongues, and saying, look, within... Within the body, tongues is not understandable by the body unless the body has someone interpret. But prophecy is is given is is edifies the body from the get go, so to speak, because everybody can understand what is said. And he's, he goes into that just to say, hey, that's why we seek these, in a sense, higher gifts because they benefit the body straightforwardly, so to speak. And he goes into the reason for tongues. And, and then he goes into a discussion, really, that's more geared toward order. In fact, he ends chapter 14 by saying uh, that, uh, that we all things should be done decently and in order, right? And so you have this tension because the, he's, he's saying you've got to, there's kind of some tensions here within the chapter in the sense that he's saying, realize that not Every claim that's in the Spirit fully reflects the Spirit. By that, by that saying, look, like, okay, you have all these gifts happening in, in the church, and it's, but it's chaotic. 
and it's not really fully reflecting the intentions of the Spirit, which is just, it's just good to realize that there's this tension. We still, even though we realize that because of the, the revelation of Scripture, the revelatory gifts are overall have ceased in the body because we have the full revelation of, of Scripture, yet at the same time, we still have this same tension. How do we express our gifts in the body? What does that look like? How do we benefit the body? And and, and, if, and if someone says, well, I'm using my gift, so to speak, and the Spirit's using me, and sometimes you're left wondering, but it doesn't look like the Spirit's using you very well. Like, you know what I mean? How that, that tension that goes into that. And he, Paul is acknowledging that here in 1 Corinthians 14 implicitly because he's saying, look, just because someone's speaking in tongues and someone's prophesying and all of these things are happening doesn't mean it's happening according to the way the Spirit really wants it to happen. Because he says, let's do it decently and in order. And yet at the same time, he's not trying to, in a sense, cancel people. You know, like in our culture today, sometimes we just cancel people like, hey, you know, you're totally wrong here. He's saying, hey, you're well-intentioned. The Spirit is using you, but it's done best in the body when you put put it in the context of love, right? And when you're considering the needs of others, not just, well, I'm, I'm having this experience or I'm, I'm, I'm showing off my gift, so to speak. And so there's this tension, if you will, that where you just need to realize, and this is something as Christians overall we do need to realize, is that not every claim of being in the Spirit is fully reflective of the Spirit, Right? And, and he goes into that in 1 Corinthians 14. And, and, but at the same time, he's also making the point by how he does this but to say that, realize, he's saying, realize that order is not something that can be kind of externally applied. Because what he could do in 1 Corinthians 14 is he could say, well, just listen to your pastor. You know what I mean? Like, like just whatever your pastor tells you to do in the worship service, that's what should happen. But he doesn't say that, right? He, he, he's, he's saying something different from that. And so one of the things he's saying is that you can't just, you can't just apply this externally. Just say, say, put the right people in the right places and everything works. So part of what he's saying is it's not about our preferences. And at the same time, he's saying there's different things that are going on at different times in the body. And you need to be paying attention to that. So how do we do that? Because in some ways he's saying two different things. He's saying, pay attention to what God is doing in others, right? Part of the whole point of 1 Corinthians 12 is, like, notice what God is, how God is using other people within the kind of tension of, that doesn't mean that everything that they claim is of the Spirit is, is really of the Spirit or fully reflects the intentions of the Spirit. And at the same time, he's saying, pay attention to what God is doing in you, like, you, you have a gift to contribute to the body. So how do we put these tensions kind of um, in a way that really benefits the order of the body? How do, how do we put it together? And he doesn't really answer this in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, that kind of tension. He addresses it, but not fully. And that's why, in some ways, the Holy Spirit inspired 2 Corinthians and I think when you get to 2 Corinthians, especially 2 Corinthians 12, he gets into this, how do you think through this order, so to speak. And my big idea this morning is that in order to benefit the body, regardless of our gift, 
we should expect Jesus to ask us to do three things at various times. So we're going to see from Paul's example in 2 Corinthians 12, how, regardless of your gift, how to move forward in this tension of letting the Spirit work in you and at the same time letting the body be the body. And so he's by seeing that Jesus asks us to do three things at various times. So if you have your Bibles, again, 2 Corinthians 12, we'll go there, since I just summarized 1 Corinthians 14, 2 Corinthians 12, and, and we're going to see three things that Jesus asks us to do, because in some ways what it comes down to is not everything that's happening in the body. As we see in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, it's really your personal relationship with Jesus, and what Jesus is kind of the, the, the love relationship he is developing, developing with you involves, in a sense, him asking you to do things that maybe uh, you don't expect uh, to happen. Have you ever been there? I mean, uh, if you've dated someone for very long or obviously if you've gotten engaged or especially if you've gotten married, right? Your, your spouse will, will do things that are unexpected, so to speak, They'll, they'll do things that, that, they'll ask for things or they'll do things that you're like, well, I wasn't expecting that. But they, they do it in some ways uh, to see if you really love them or not, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's one of those things where you're like, well, just, just don't you, you know, I can say I love you. Should you just take the words at face value, right? Like if I say, oh, Amy, I love you. And, and she's like, but I, I don't see it right now. You're like, well, I, I'm saying it. Isn't that good enough, right? And she's like, no, you know, you haven't, you haven't done the dishes. You haven't, you haven't done the things that really mean love right now, right? And so it's the same way in our relationship with Jesus, right? He's going to ask us to do certain things. And, and you're going to be like, but this doesn't necessarily... Can I just say I love you, Jesus, and that be good enough? And he's like, no, I, I want to experience that love relationship with you, and I, I want you to experience my love for you at the same time. And so in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is, is dealing with this relationship with Jesus, and they're, in some ways the Corinthians' challenge of, of that relationship, it is, especially as far as regards to apostleship and whatever, but his insight here is, is really key in understanding this relationship we, we, that we have with Jesus and how it affects our relationship to the body as a whole. So just follow along as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1. I'm jumping into the middle here of this argument where Paul is, is talking about how God has used him in the past and yet what what it means, or how, do, how does he think about it? So notice what he says. He says, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1, he says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my, on be, my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Although if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. For I, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, 
A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming proud or conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, he should leave, that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So the first thing that that Paul wants them to get here, these, this, you know, these asks, in a sense, that Jesus is asking, is that Jesus wants us to value weakness over strength to magnify his grace. He wants us to ma- value weakness over strength to magnify his grace. Again, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. But, but before he gets there, right, he's talking about revelations, in a sense, just like he was talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 and, and all of that section there, where he's talking about, hey, I've got these amazing truths from God that I can't, ultimately you realize he's talking about himself, that I can't talk about, but, I'm, but I'm, I don't want to boast about that anyway, because God taught me, Jesus taught me a lesson, so to speak, that I need to value my weakness over my strength in order to help his grace to be seen for what it truly is. And this is an important point, right? We live in a world, N.T. Wright says this in For All God's Worth, uh, we live in a world full of people struggling to be, or at least to appear, strong in order not to be weak. And we follow a gospel which says that when I am weak, then I am, I am strong. And this gospel is the only thing that brings healing, right? Like, we think to ourselves in some ways, okay, I mean, these are the temptation sometimes, right? God saved me, Why? Well, because I could add so much to the kingdom, right? Because I can do so much. And when we think about gifting, in some ways that's what we think, right? We think, okay, God saved me and he gave me this gift in order to be of benefit to the body, to say, look, isn't this amazing that, that I can bring this to the body? And yet Jesus is saying, no, no, the point is not to focus on the gift. The, foc- the, the, the point is to focus on my grace in the midst of you working. And sometimes that's, in fact, Oftentimes, that's most clearly revealed when we see our weaknesses and not our strengths. And again, our culture doesn't like to focus on that. I get that, right? We want to see the successful. We want to see the amazing. We want to see the powerful. And God says, but you show off my my grace and my strength when you're weak and I'm strong. In her book, Tramp for the Lord, Corey Tenboom tells the story of a woman she met in Russia during communist persecution of Christians during the Cold War. The old woman was lying, she, she writes, on a small sofa propped up by pillows. Her body was bent and twisted almost beyond recognition by multiple sclerosis. Her aged husband spent all his time caring for her since she was unable to move off of the sofa. The only part of the body she could control was her right hand. And with her index finger of that hand, she had for many years glorified God by typing on a vintage typewriter beside her. All day and far into the night she would type. She translated Christian books into Russian, typing it out one letter at a time. Always using that one finger, peck, 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 she typed out the pages, portions of the Bible, books of Billy Graham, and even Corey Tenboom's books. 
Not only does she translate the books, her husband said, as she hovered close, but she prays for these people every day while she types. Sometimes it takes a long time for her finger to hit the key or for her to get the paper in the machine, but all the time she's praying for those whose books she's working on. Again, Corey Tenbridge writes, I looked at her wasted form on the sofa, her head pulled down and her feet curled under her body, and I said, oh Lord, why don't you heal her? Her husband, sensing my anguish of soul, gave the answer. God has a purpose in her sickness. Every other Christian in the city is watched by the secret police, but because she has been sick so long, no one comes to check on her. They leave us alone, and she is the only person in all the city who can type quietly, undetected by the police. God uses even us in our weakness, right? And no one would wish to have multiple sclerosis, and no one would wish to, to type one letter at a time on a typewriter. That's fine. You don't, we shouldn't wish for that. The point, though, is God introduces weaknesses into our lives of various kinds all of the time. Physically, sometimes. Sometimes emotionally. Sometimes spiritually we feel dry and dead. There's all kinds of weaknesses that come into our lives at various times. And the, the point is not to like shove those down and be like, well, I've got to appear strong and I've got to show God's grace, going to show off my gift. When Paul is saying, no. Realize that when you are weak, then God's strength is perfected in your weakness. It's okay to, to go to God and, and, and show your dependence on him and, your, and your, your need for him. Why? Because that relationship is there. He wants to be seen as strong. He wants to be seen as loving. He wants to be seen as, as, as helping and carrying you along. He doesn't want you to be like, well, look, how, I'm so great. I don't need Jesus, basically. And so Jesus asks us at various times and in various ways, to value weakness over strength, to magnify his grace. And so if you're sitting there saying, okay, how do I use my gift? What, 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 what do I need to do here? How do, how, I feel, I'm not sure how to use it. Think about your weakness a lot of times versus your strength. Realize the times when you, you feel like, I, I don't know what to do here. I don't know how to act. I feel insulted here or I feel uh, that I can't, I can't move forward here. Those are the times when God is, can show up powerfully in your life to do something as you walk by faith with him. And I could probably spend a whole sermon on this. But I'm going to go on to the second thing that I think that Jesus asks a little later in the chapter where he asks us to value people over resources to magnify his love. Value people over resources to magnify his, his love. Notice 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14. He says, Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not, to, not what is yours but you. It's, it's, that phrase right there just struck me, right? I seek not, as you, not what is yours but you. I think especially when you're weak, you often turn to the body and you're like, what resources does the body have to benefit me or to help me out? I'm weak. I need help. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that kind of logic necessarily. But there's something else that Paul is 
is saying that sometimes what we, what we need to realize about the body is that the body is there to be the body, not because of the resources that it provides. Does that make sense? Like, when you seek someone, when you, like, when you seek someone, do you seek them or do you seek their resources? Like, you know, the temptation for pastors, right, is, well, we all, just like we celebrated our volunteers, we, we, we need people with more time, right? Like, give, give us more of your time. And, and so we want that resource of time from you in order to do something special or important or whatever. And, but we can not value people as people, we can value people for their time or their money, you know, like, oh, their, their tithe or, or the way they can provide or they can give extra or whatever. Like, that's more important than them as people, as individuals. And one of the things God does in the body is, especially I think here he's saying, Jesus is asking him, and Jesus asks us to do this as well, is to value people over the resources they provide. To say, look, I love, I love people, not just their resources. You know, it's uh, Paul, let's see, what's his name again? Rodney Reeves, in Spirituality According to Paul, comments on this. He says, Most athletes believe that God or fate is on their side, right? Indeed, when they win a championship, talk of destiny fills the room, right? Like we're destined to do this. What must be confusing to these highly trained, well-paid professionals is when they lose the game they were destined to win, right? Does it mean that God doesn't like them, that he wasn't for them, that they weren't as special as they thought? Indeed, would any of them have the guts to admit that they were destined to lose? I'm sure many have noticed that we never hear athletes during the post-game interviews thank God for their loss, although some have started to do that. It seems that the God of athletics only shows up when players win. But the Apostle Paul believed that the God of Israel delights in showing up in the midst of loss. The resurrection of Christ proves that, right? God turns losing into gain, death into life, sorrow into joy, weakness into strength, futility into glory. So I can imagine, he says, Paul throwing his arm around the athlete who just lost the World Series or the Super Bowl and saying, son of Adam, life is a game and we're all destined to lose. Let's go celebrate the good news, right? Just proves that God is in control. It's not about us. It's not about the resources we can gain. And, and, at times, what Jesus is asking us to do is value people for who they are, not for their resources. To step back and say, man, I value who God has made them to be. I value how God is working in their life. And that means that maybe at this particular time, their resources aren't accessible to me, but I'm excited that they're still a part of the body. I'm excited that they're still at work, involved, doing what God wants them to do. And that can be difficult, right? Especially when you feel in need. When you feel like, hey, and because Paul would feel in need often. I mean, when he's insulted and persecuted and, you know, all these things going on, you say, well, then the Corinthians should come alongside him. And instead, the Corinthians are like, Paul, why are you giving us so much trouble? And he's he's saying, I value you. I, I want you, not your resources, not yours. I want you. I want to know that our relationship is good, that, we're, that we, we have a love for one another that's not about how much we are sharing together of resources, but that we are sharing life on life, that we love the same things. 
I think the last thing that Jesus asks us to do sometimes is to value integrity over reputation to magnify joy. And this is actually going into 2 Corinthians 13. He's following this logic along. And he comes to verse 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the, fle- the, the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you. Indeed, unless indeed you fail to meet the test, I hope you will find that we have not failed the tests, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. To value integrity over reputation in order to magnify joy. Now, what he's saying here ultimately in some ways is, is he's saying two things, right? He's saying, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. He's saying, test yourselves. There, just really quick on a side note here. There's kind of like three tests that First John gives for kind of testing whether you're in the faith. The first one is a doctrinal test. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God or not? Okay, that's one test to know whether you're saved or not. Um, the, second, the second test is, is practical in a sense, is do you love the brothers? First John makes it clear. Like if, you, if you're a son of God, you love the children of God. You, you love his, his family, so to speak. Uh, and and the, the, third, the, the other test is also practical. It's, it's related to sin. It's not that have you kicked every sin out of your life. It's not perfection. It's simply do you, do you still want to confess sin? Do you recognize sin in your life and you're seeking to confess it? Not that you've conquered it, but that you're just, you've recognized the struggle that you're in. And, and those are, in some ways, here he's saying, look, are you a part of this? Just, has Jesus, is Jesus in you or not? Is he, is, he, is he related to you or not? Then if you are, then you'll realize that, that you don't need to worry about your reputation as much as you want to love the truth. You want to love the truth of what God does and says, and, and, and you love that more than in some ways you love your own reputation. Right? Because that's what he says here. He says, I, we think we've met the test, but you may... I mean, he's, in some ways he's saying, you, you may think I've failed the test. Like, I don't measure up. I'm not, a, quote, unquote, really saved or not somehow because I'm not doing what you expect me to do. But he's saying, I'm not so concerned that you think that I've failed the test or not. I, I'm concerned that you walk in the truth, that you pursue the truth. It's very similar to what goes, is going on in Hebrews chapter 12, where the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a, crowd of li- great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Paul is saying here, look, there are times when you'll, you'll appear to have failed, but people are walking in the truth, and that's way more important than what you look like sometimes. It's, it's kind of like coaching. I don't, if you've ever coached uh, 
kids, you, you kind of understand this, right? You're, you get a, a, a group of kids uh, with varying degrees of skill, and you, um, you're seeking to improve them. You know that you're not going to turn uh, half athletes into super athletes, you know what I mean? And you know that uh, you're, you're going to help some kids that are good athletes to get a little bit better, and, and so you go into a game, and during that game, you might lose to a better team. It's, it's part of being a coach in youth soccer or whatever, youth sports, right? You, you, can, you can lose to a better team. The, the thing as a coach that you're more interested in is not what your parents think of you. Uh, what you're really concerned with is your kids, that they believe that they're growing and getting better and that they're pursuing what they need to pursue to be better, in this case, at soccer, that, they, that they're improving. You don't care so much about how, what you look like as a coach. What your joy is in is in your children walking in the truth. Your, your, what your joy is in is in your kids pursuing and getting better at soccer. And so here Paul is saying the exact same thing, really. He's saying, look, there are times when Jesus is going to ask you, hey, you, you, you might be seeking to love some people and use your gift in a certain way, and it doesn't come across the way you intended it to come across, right? You, you, you thought, oh, I'm going to teach here, or I'm going to serve here, and it, people don't respond the way you expected them to respond. And Jesus is asking you, in a sense, but rejoice in the truth. Will you rejoice in the truth? Because I, in a sense, Jesus does that with us, right? He rejoices in the truth. We don't get it right all the time. We sin, we fail, right? But what does Jesus do? He rejoices in us. He, he loves us. He keeps working in us. He doesn't give up on us. And that's why he's given us the Holy Spirit. He's, he's working in us. And so when, when we serve and the Holy Spirit works through us, and then it doesn't quite go the way we expect it to go. Sometimes Jesus asks us in a sense of, Rejoice in the truth. Rejoice in the fact that things are moving forward, that the people you're ministering to are pursuing truth at least. Now you say, well, they don't always pursue truth. My kids don't. People I do work with church, then grieve. It's okay to grieve sometimes when people don't do what you think they should do too. But here he's talking about joy. He's saying, look, where's your joy really at? And this is what happens, frankly, when the Holy Spirit starts to use you in the body, is your heart gets revealed ultimately. That's what's going on here. Paul is saying, sometimes you want to see your, your strength, or you want to see your impact, or you want to see whatever. And it's, it's still about you. <laughs> and it's not about my grace. It's not about my spirit. It's not about how I'm working and, and guiding and directing. And every parent knows that they can't control their children. They can't force their children to do what they want them to do. But what they are doing is they're trusting in their Heavenly Father to continue to work even when they fail as a parent. That what they, they, they're trusting that the Holy Spirit is, is working behind the scenes in ways they can't understand and they can't always follow. And this is the challenge we have to delight in what Jesus is doing, even when we can't always see it. Why? Because this is better than the world. Why? Because it values everyone, not just the strong. 
You go out in the world, the world values the strong, the fast, the capable, the rich, the powerful. God values even the weak. In fact, in some ways you could argue he values the weak more because it shows off his grace. Not only that, it challenges everyone because we all, we all want to compete. We all want to focus on what we can do. But God says, no, focus on other people and loving them and not just their resources. It focuses everyone on joy, the joy set before us. Because everyone's looking for happiness. But can you find happiness when you're perceived to be wrong, but others are walking in truth? That is really pursuing truth and loving truth, and enjoying truth. We want to be a scripture-focused, loving family that disciples in grace and truth. And sometimes that means that Jesus asks us to do these three things, to value weakness over strength, to, to value loving people over resources, to value the, that sense of, hey, uh, they're walking in truth even though my reputation might... Uh, might take a hit, so to speak. Jeannie Watson in the 1800s wrote a pamphlet called Others May, You Cannot. Others May, You Cannot. He says, if God has called you to be really be like Jesus, he will draw you into a life of humility and put upon you certain demands of obedience that you will not be able to, that will make sure that you will not be able to follow other people. In many ways, he will seem to let other people do things he will not let you do. Others in the body may seem very devoted and successful and may promote themselves and pull strings and work schemes to carry out their plans, but you cannot do it. And if you try, you will reap failure and rebuke. There's times when the Holy Spirit will put such a strict watch over you with jealous love and rebuke you for little words or feelings or for wasting your time where other Christians seem to not be distressed by that at all. He says, so make up your mind that God is an infinite sovereign and that he has a right to deal with his own as he pleases. He may not explain to you a thousand things that puzzle your mind in his dealings with you, but if you give yourself to him completely to be his servant, he will wrap you in a jealous love and bestow on you many blessings which come only to those who are truly in his inner circle. Settle it forever then. You are to deal directly with the Holy Spirit, and he is to have the privilege of tying your tongue or of chaining your hands or of closing your eyes in ways that he does not seem to do to others. Now, when you are so possessed with the living God that in your secret heart you are pleased and delighted over this peculiar, personal, private, jealous guardianship and management of the Holy Spirit over your life, then you will receive the strangest gift, joy, in the ministry. And what he's saying here is, the Holy Spirit works with each of us individually. You cannot go and look around the body and be like, well, they're doing this, and it seems like this is happening for them, or that person over there, this is happening for them. The Holy Spirit works with you, and he wants to have this, Jesus wants to have this individual relationship with you. And so he's going to ask you in various times and in various ways when he's not asking someone else <laughs> to do the same thing, to value weakness over strength, to value people over resources and to value integrity over reputation. And it will seem hard in a sense because you will be like, well, he's, you know, just like, you remember the story, right, of John and Peter 
after Jesus fed them after the resurrection at the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is talking with Peter and and, and he says, you know, you, there's going to come a point in time where they're going to bind you and lead you in a place you will not go and you're going to die, right? And what does Peter say? He says, well, what about John? <laughs> and Jesus says, don't worry about John. Follow me. Jesus loves you. He loved you enough to die for you. And that means that your life is very valuable to him. But it also means that he's not trying to make you like everyone else. He's not trying to say, okay, I, 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 I love this generic Christian, and I'm going to turn everyone into generic Christians. He's not doing that. He loves you. He has a plan for you. And that means there are certain limitations and certain asks He's going to ask of you that he's not going to ask of other people. Now, you might run into a few that he's asked similar things of. That's great. Learn from them. Enjoy that. But don't be afraid of the individual asks of Jesus. It means he loves you. It means he's asking you to do something because he wants to use you in a way he's not going to use other people. And I know, as Americans, overall, we like to be all in it together. <laughs> and let's do it all together. And there's something to that. There's a joy in doing things together. But there's also a joy in realizing Jesus walks with you. And he wants to have that relationship with you personally. And uh, there's... There's no substitute for it, honestly. You can't substitute kind of a group relationship for, with Jesus for an individual one. What you'll find over time is, okay, yeah, I, I, like I have this great re group relationship with Jesus. We come to church. We celebrate the wins. We, we see what God is doing, and that's awesome. But that does not help you in the, in the darkness of the night when you're alone sobbing on your bed. It doesn't help you when your parents die and no one, else, no one else's parents have died yet. It doesn't help you when, when you're in the midst of your own personal grief over whatever personally is affecting you. You need a personal relationship with Jesus. You need to know he loves you. And the ways he does that are strange and wonderful. He asks you to value weakness over strength. He asks you to value people over resources. And he asks you to value integrity over reputation. And when you follow those asks, and they don't come all the time, sometimes he uses your strengths. And sometimes he uses your reputation. And sometimes he uses the resources that are available. It's not, he doesn't do it all one way. But when he asks for those kind of special things, you should see it as a special invitation from Jesus to walk with him and to know his love and to feel his joy in ways that you would not experience any other way. So will you, as the Holy Spirit said to Peter, will you not in a sense, fight the, the Holy Spirit. Will you see that 
it is truly that God's grace is made perfect in weakness. His grace is sufficient for you. And his power is made perfect in your weakness. For when you are weak, he is strong. Will you believe that? Will you rejoice in that? Will you walk in that? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the individual invitations of Jesus. Lord, you're working in each one of us in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's through our strengths, and we, we, we use our strengths, and we see the amazing things that happen, and we rejoice in that. Sometimes it's through our weaknesses, and we have to rest in you and walk with you and trust in you and know that you love us, and you're using us in ways that only you could do it because we can't do it ourselves. And sometimes we just need to value the relationships we have and not the resources that they bring. And sometimes we need to value just walking in the truth. Lord, what a joy it is to know that our children walk in truth. What a joy it is to know that we can walk in truth and walk with you. And I don't know where everybody's at, but I do know that you love them individually, that you want to have that individual relationship with you. And you're inviting them into that in a variety of ways. Help us to walk with you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.